Are you also tired of one-size-fits-all weight loss plans? Meet Noom, the personalized solution that meets you where you are. Noom is able to understand your unique needs, from dietary restrictions to medical concerns. Unlike restrictive programs, Noom embraces your lifestyle and choices. Discover a sustainable approach to weight loss, tailored just for you. Honestly, Noom felt like it was made for me. It's not just about what I eat. It's about understanding why. With Noom, I've learned so much about myself and built healthier habits that stick. It's all about progress, not perfection. Say goodbye to restrictive diets and experience the Noom app for yourself with personalized lessons and expert coaching. Noom's psychology and biology-based approach has helped over 5.2 million people achieve their goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Thermonuclear Takes from Physical Attraction. This episode, we're going to move on, and in good old-fashioned Thermonuclear Takes-style fashion, we're going to revisit some of our old friends and topics that have been in the news lately that we've discussed previously on this show. Long-term listeners will remember the fun I had trying to cover the various investments of the SoftBank Vision Fund, because SoftBank-related scandals and bankruptcies kept happening in the midst of me writing those scripts, requiring them to be constantly changed and updated at the last minute. Well, of course, there have been more stories to report on since then. When we went through the series, I basically looked at any company that the Vision Fund had invested more than about a billion dollars in, and some of the more interesting ones that were smaller investments. In particular, there was a penchant for the fund to invest in so-called technology firms that were making big promises about disrupting existing industries, but which ultimately seemed to not have all that much in the way of actual technology, and were more focused on getting around existing regulations. Things like Uber and WeWork are pioneers of this business model, I suppose you could say, but also Greensill Capital in the financial services sector. Well, since then, of course, Greensill Capital has completely collapsed, as we covered in the earlier episode. This story has continued to spiral and have fallout all over the world, of course, including for the governor of West Virginia, Jim Justice, who is a billionaire. He owns a coal mining company called Bluestone Resources, and through entanglements with this company, is somehow personally on the hook for $700 million, which is owed to Greensill. The involvement of former UK Prime Minister David Cameron, who acted as a lobbyist for Greensill and certainly attempted to get them some lucrative government contracts during the Covid epidemic, has also caused a political scandal here in the UK. The Financial Times recently revealed that Cameron was earning $1 million a year for his part-time advisory role. His contract suggests that he was working 25 days annually, so this netted him $40,000 a day. Not that I want to impugn the uh, value that the former PM would bring to a company, but one imagines that's mostly about who he knows and can WhatsApp, which appears to be how a great deal of stuff is being run. Elsewhere in SoftBank world, though, their humanoid robot Pepper, the one that was made by SoftBank Robotics, which some people know was formerly Aldebaran Robotics, a French company, um, has temporarily paused production, citing weak demand, it has been recently confirmed. Now, they've said that they will only resume making these robots when they are needed, which frankly may well be never. Now, naively, given that Pepper is basically an iPad on wheels, and the closest that it might be able to come to fulfilling an actual function might maybe be at a push as like a concierge or taking orders at a restaurant or something, 
You might have thought a few people would try and experiment with this, given the social distancing that has been enforced by COVID uh, might be a bit of a gimmick, I don't know, or indeed a new business model where you didn't need to have a human server who could potentially be an infection vector. But um, clearly the robot is not ready for prime time on this front either, or at least no businesses are willing to risk paying for one that then can't perform. Now there will of course also be fewer people to make those robots as well, since they're laying off half of the 330 staff at the robotics arm of the company. Now we've discussed extensively the difficulties associated with making humanoid robots that are even remotely useful, and how big the valley of death is for that kind of technology, how difficult it has proved in the past to get anything that basically isn't just a gimmick off the ground, and so indeed it has proved in this case. Apparently 27,000 pepper units were made during the entire production run. Which is not nothing, but with a price tag of a couple of thousand dollars per robot, I mean, the thing that you have to understand here is for SoftBank, this is tiny compared to even the amount of money that they put into Greensill or similarly failed ventures. The thing is with SoftBank and with many tech companies, you wouldn't know that this is how they're structured based on how they advertise themselves. After all, it was the launch of this Pepper robot that they claimed at the time in typical uh, hyperbolic fashion would be remembered for 100, 200, 300 years. Uh, maybe not fun. I think when you know a bit more about SoftBank the company, you can see why it was worth the relatively small expenditure for them to invest in this advanced-seeming robot and have themselves a kind of nascent robotics division. And really, it's basically just for the PR, and posing as a company that has designs on a crazy, robotics-heavy, singularity-esque future. Uh, and you can see, of course, in the fact they've now sold Boston Dynamics to Hyundai, who maybe have a bit more engineering to do, um, and another aspect of this uh, divestment and diversion away from robotics as their uh, future focus. And indeed, with the uh, SoftBank Vision Fund 2, which we'll talk about a bit more, it seems like they've now realised that the hype space is not really in robotics anymore and in artificial intelligence. So you can expect everything that is SoftBank related to be uh, infused with the phrase artificial intelligence and so on, uh, sprinkled around like a sort of pixie dust that can do almost anything that you want it to, uh, often very, very light on what it actually is that they are doing. Um, which, of course, was a tactic that Greensill Capital used a lot. And uh, there's some quite funny exchanges that have come out in recent Greensill reports where um, Lex Greensill is explaining how uh, they can use machine learning and technology to enable them to make payments faster in a way that the government can't by itself and all this sort of thing. And you just really want to have that follow-up question where you're like, okay, what is the technology? How does machine learning do this? Or are you just giving me buzzwords? But anyway, that's a bit of a, a side point on this. The thing is, of course, this sort of just underlines that all of this was only ever really about PR for SoftBank, which in some ways is almost like a, a a bank in itself, even though it's supposed to be a, a telecoms and technology company, in terms of how it manages its assets and uh, invests in things. It, it is a strange, uh, hyper-financialized entity in a lot of ways, you could say. And this is shown again by just how the, the sums of money that actually go into practical robotics development is completely dwarfed by the stuff that goes into all of this uh, financial shenanigans that they were involved with, with, with Greensill and Credit Suisse and other various enterprises like that. And um, the money-seeking money, I guess you would say, is what this is, rather than necessarily money investing in research and development predominantly uh, that is allocated towards the building the technological future that they claim to be interested in. And uh, I think this sort of just underlines that. I think for the 
you know, techno-optimists, you have to understand that they're far better for the base of SoftBank is going to be some cute, gimmicky humanoid robot than the kind of thing that their balance sheet is actually invested in, which is more like billions of dollars on businesses like WeWork and Uber. And Uber itself, of course, we've talked before about how their quote-unquote fully self-driving capability, which was where they had their big pretensions being a technology company rather than a kind of platform uh, app that is doing regulatory arbitrage, um, that, that has now fallen away. And it seems like the only technology you could say Uber really has is the app. And the value proposition for that business is much more about the network of riders uh, and the brand recognition than anything else. So... I think if you're a techno-optimist who might be dreaming of a general multi-purpose humanoid robot, this probably counts as a setback. Once you see the purpose of the Pepper robot more clearly, not to actually be useful but for a PR gimmick, you can see why it falls into the category of robots and systems that are operated in a deceptive way. And it's kind of sad really because if you actually look back to the foundation of Aldebaran Robotics, I remember reading a lot about this when I was doing my research into different humanoid robotics companies and... Uh, their original projects now, and uh, there was one that I believe was called Romeo, um, was, were quite small but quite interesting sort of platform robots, basically built for science experiments, built for people to uh, program themselves, to learn how to develop the software applications that robots could use um, for experimental applications, really. Uh, I think there was a lot more innocence um, to that project before SoftBank took it over. And the Now and Romeo robots uh, were more mechanically interesting. They had more like flexible joints. Um, people taught them to play football, that kind of thing. Never going to be practical, although Romeo was supposedly... Um, I think they wanted to try and get into the elder care market for robots, which everyone seems to think is going to be a thing, um, and realised that it wasn't dexterous enough to do that. So they then sort of tried to refashion it as a as a sort of companion, a humanoid companion that didn't actually do anything practical and then that project was dropped and then we have Pepper which is kind of like an iPad on wheels with uh, arms that don't really do anything and a, and a face that sort of uh, moves around but less interesting and clearly not designed to be practically manipulating the world in any way um, but of course when you have these things as being built as deceptive being built as iconic images that represent the future in people's minds. How many articles about robotics have you seen that have this picture of Pepper or Sophia, the Hanson Robotics' Sophia robot, as header images? Um, it gives us all a deceptive view of where technology is going, where companies like SoftBank are pushing the technology, what they're actually investing in, and the utility of these types of robotics. And, you know, I think that's sad. And in particular with Hanson Robotics as Sphere Robot, that constantly makes extremely misleading appearances, publicity stunts, designed to convince the credulous that it's much more advanced than it appears to be. But uh, evidently, Pepper has done this as well, according to one particularly fed-up expert quoted by the BBC on this. So this is Professor Noel Sharkey. He says that he would be happy to see an end to Pepper. Uh, Pepper did a lot of harm to genuine robotics research, he says, by giving an often false impression of a bright cognitive being that could hold conversations. It was mostly remote control with the human conversing through its speakers. Deceiving the public in this way is dangerous and gives the wrong impression of the capabilities of AI in the real world. Meanwhile, the actual users of Pepper did find that it left a lot to be desired. Per The Verge and The Wall Street Journal, we have this. 
So the Wall Street Journal report does credit the robot, which required monthly subscriptions starting at $550, with being able to take temperatures about as well as a $1 thermometer. It could also function as a rudimentary hotel concierge. Otherwise, Pepper failed at almost every other task assigned and ended up roughly as sophisticated as the smart speakers that were appearing around the same time. Its failures included such improbable jobs as Buddhist priest and exercise coach for the elderly. But it also failed at tasks like home companionship, for which it seemed ideally suited, as recounted by tech journalist Sutumu Ishikawa. After arriving at the Ishikawa home, however, Pepper couldn't recognise the faces of family members or carry on a proper conversation, said Mr Ishikawa. The robot connected to the cloud is supposed to remember the family even after a breakdown, but when Pepper returned home after the repair of a sensor, Pepper greeted him, Nice to meet you. He shipped the robot back to SoftBank in 2018 after spending at least $9,000 over the three-year life of his subscription services agreement. He wasn't eligible for any form of refund. It was such a waste of money, I still regret it, he said. So it might seem like I'm picking on SoftBank and similar, but I really think that these unrealistic expectations of what technology can do and where it will lead us can influence us in all kinds of bad and counterproductive ways that are about much more than some robotics nerds angry that you don't really understand what robots are, or sick of seeing images of the Terminator. If people are expecting these robots to come along and soon be capable of solving problems like an ageing population, or that they might succeed in automating those 50% of all occupations that are highly routine, as in the famous Oxford study, they're in for a rude awakening, unless there is a huge investment and huge breakthrough in these technologies that it's made soon. And those inflated expectations of how technology will develop change political and technical realities. There is a techno-solutionism, I think, that, that I think recent years there's been a backlash against this that is starting to be more and more effective. But certainly for a long time it has pervaded things that technology will be invented that will come along and solve all of our problems. And I think that leads to the expectation of that and its inevitability leads to a lack of political imagination, a lack of appreciation of the economic factors that are actually influencing how businesses invest in research and development, a lack of nuance in your understanding of the different roles of uh, industry and government along different stages of the innovation landscape, and basically just misleads you in your expectation of what society is going to look like in 20, 30, 40 years. And those expectations influence decisions that are made here and today. And then, of course, I can, on the other level, feel for Professor Sharkey if he's constantly having to deal with the public expecting him to have built Terminators, when in reality, he's just trying to get the dang arm to pick up an egg without crushing it. Reflecting on humanoid robotics, then, I think our naive expectations about how technology can or might or will inevitably develop are based on things that are easy to imagine, envisage, familiar images from science fiction and so on. And then these things run headfirst into the practicalities of actual scientific and engineering innovation and the requirements on many of these things to turn around to profit quite quickly. There's no niche for these humanoid robots. There's no uh, obvious profitable way to develop them. Just as coming up with a general artificial intelligence is extremely difficult, and there's a much more obvious motive to create individual machine learning algorithms that excel at very specific tasks, so it feels to me that the real developments in robotics are still going to arise from practical problems that have to be solved, that have quite specific tasks, uh, ranging up to a sort of moderate level of generality, rather than going straight for the robot butler. Things like warehouse packaging and picking, similar to what Amazon have been up to, 
That, I think, is where the development is likely to be. Those who advocate for humanoid robots have suggested that you might have something like Pepper or a simpler sort of droid with a mobile arm like Toyota's HSR2 robot as a platform that everyone agrees on using and then they all design a series of software applications for. In that sense, the value is added to a basic hardware platform by the people who program the software, which is a model that has worked very well for your smartphone. But this falls down on two fronts. The first one, of course, is that programming the software for these robots to actually do useful things in the physical world with all of the contingencies and problems that arise is just way, way, way harder. Watch footage of the RoboCup at Home challenge, for example, to see how difficult even teams of trained grad students and academics in robotics find to get them to do anything even remotely useful, even remotely quickly, under highly controlled and idealised conditions. And that's not to denigrate the skill of these people, it's just to say it's a really hard job that we're nowhere near solving. And the second one, of course, is that this approach only really works if enough people are working with your specific platform to design decent software for it. There are 3 billion active Android devices, 6 million people at least developing apps for this particular platform. Clearly, there can be far fewer people working on these hardware platform robots, which hardly sell into the tens of thousands of units. I suppose it's still just about conceivable that one of these platforms might become the standard someday and people will come up with all sorts of amazing things to do with it. But I wouldn't hold my breath and expect to see a continuation of what we've seen throughout the technical development that we're going to see more and more of these specialist tasks automated by specific devices or pieces of software with a relatively low demand for these platforms that can, at best, be ineffective at many different things and capable of none. The point about the smart speakers being the things that will leverage developments in natural language processing, uh, to wit, why do you need uh, one that can move around in the form of a humanoid robot, is, is an obvious one, and I think that will continue to be true. And I think that, ultimately there's going to be a low, low demand for ineffective platforms that are capable of not doing any specialist tasks particularly well. A general-purpose humanoid robot is practically as far away as it has been for a long time, and maybe, in all likelihood, an idea that is best left for science fiction or the extremely far-flung future, even if technology evolves down that road, but I'm not sure that it will. There, now I've made my predictions, so prove me wrong so I can finally get the robot butler of my dreams. Elsewhere in SoftBank world, you might remember that one of the companies we discussed in the episode that ran down a lot of their businesses was Caterra. This was the idea to essentially disrupt the whole construction industry by uh, integrated supply chain plus some magical technology dust or something like that. Anyway, despite $2 billion of capital ingested by SoftBank through its life, including a $200 million bailout in December last year, it was another casualty of the Greensill affair and filed for bankruptcy in June 2021, complaining about the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic and its inability to raise more capital with its main lender, who were Greensill, who are now, of course, out of action. The weirdly incestuous nature of all of these SoftBank startups, apparently depending on and investing in each other, and the house of cards of inflated valuations, and what, for fear of lawyers, I will refer to as interesting balance sheets, has clearly cost Caterra. So that's another multi-billion dollar startup with heavy SoftBank investment, which promised to take over a whole industry by um, technology something something, which has now collapsed to zero. You can add that to the list. In the meantime, Credit Suisse, who are involved in some of these weird operations that Greensill will are doing to loan money to other SoftBank-backed companies, they're now suing SoftBank. It was their withdrawal of support from the enterprise that precipitated the collapse of Greensill, 
And listeners to the SoftBank series might remember Massasson's infamous slideshow where he outlined the sort of thousand-year business plan for SoftBank. In an investor update this May, he was back on the slide decks, but uh, Massa was alluding to Greensill, etc., under the title Many Regrets. Um, another revelation which I read in the Financial Times article on this by Robert Smith, who's done very well reporting on all of this stuff, um, is that Massa and Greensill had a plan uh, to lend $3 billion to prop up WeWork when it was struggling before this was ultimately abandoned. So again, that sort of shows you that they really weren't averse to using Greensill to funnel money into uh, struggling other companies in the SoftBank portfolio. And uh, I don't know enough about the law to say anything other than that this seems unethical. Um, yet despite all this, there is another story that we'd be remiss not to mention, which is that the Vision Fund, at least on paper at the moment, is actually doing pretty well. By March 2021, they had reported a $45 billion profit on the previous year, which more than made up for their big losses in 2020. As is the want for Masayoshi Son, almost all of this profit comes from a couple of big successes, namely South Korean e-commerce company Coupang and delivery app DoorDash, which both went public and netted SoftBank billions on their initial investments. So I think it's worth saying, given that I've bashed them quite intensively, the point of view from the fans of SoftBank and Masason, and they would claim this, of course, as validation of the business model. Even though billions are being invested in these ridiculously high-value companies, rather than providing seed capital, he's still being a venture capitalist, relying on a few bets that turn out to be very successful, offsetting the huge losses from all of the many bets that don't pan out, aren't successful, and ultimately fold. In this sense, in rather crazy financial times, he is a crazy genius. And it's worth remembering the history of this investor, whereby many of Massa's worst investments, uh, particularly during the dot-com bubble, historically these things were offset by getting Alibaba right. And that golden bet on Alibaba was sort of enough to uh, maintain profitability and uh, dig his business out of the fire and there's still a very big part of their valuation today. Critics like me, meanwhile, are left to churlishly point out that these aren't really innovative technology companies. I mean, DoorDash, Coupang, these things are just variations on things that already exist. How does this fit into the glorious plan for the next century of SoftBank world domination? Why is it that SoftBank, which is doing well but could be doing even better, continues to throw money at things that just seem to be claiming they'll disrupt various industries with technology without explaining what the technology is or seemingly having any viable technologies to actually deploy. And of course, we would also say that the stock market is so willing to throw billions into companies that aren't making profits and may never make profits that occasionally being on the right side of this insanity for a year or so does not necessarily guarantee long-term success. DoorDash, for example, was described as the most ridiculous IPO of 2020. Its prices vary between $100 and $220 just since December of last year. There's a lot of people saying that uh, it's not making profit at the moment, but it's about to get even worse for it as the delivery home delivery service uh, that they have operated successfully during the pandemic starts to ease off a bit as things get back to normal, uh, depending on whether or not that happens. Um, so your nominal stake in a company like this can change size on the order of billions in the order of a few weeks. So it does make you a little bit worried about whether that 45 billion in profit could disappear again just as quickly. But what it does do though is ensure that SoftBank's Vision Fund 2 will now get off the ground. This one reportedly is planning to invest in much more and much smaller companies. So for example according to the FT, 
The new fund has invested about $20 billion in more than 90 startups and had plans for investments in 30 additional companies, according to two people briefed on the numbers. By comparison, the first Vision Fund invested $85.7 billion in under 100 companies. So you can see that the number of companies invested in versus money is, is the ratio has shifted, and we're having more smaller investments in smaller companies. The new fund is also reportedly going to focus on investments in software, AI, and healthcare businesses, rather than taking these huge chunks out of companies like Uber, WeWork, and so on. What actually happens with this new vision fund remains to be seen. I don't think it's particularly likely to propel us that much closer to the technological dreamland, futuristic flying cars utopia that appears on the marketing material. But one thing it probably will continue to do is to generate hilarious stories of bizarre and often ill-conceived businesses going under, and weird stories of financial shenanigans which feel like they shouldn't be allowed but somehow maybe are, with eye-watering sums of money are involved. And that will continue to give people like me things to talk about, which is good, I suppose. But on the subject of that, you know, that's the kind of financial story which makes you just have an awful sinking feeling, like maybe vast portions of our global economic society are just wily coyote, legs cycling in the air, having already run a long way past the cliff edge, but having not yet somehow realised that we are supposed to plummet into the canyon. That type of thing. More on that next time. Thank you for listening to this newsy episode of Thermonuclear Takes from Physical Attraction. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com. There you'll find the contact form. Any comments, questions, or concerns, please get in touch with me. I love to hear from you. Any topics you'd like us to discuss, people you think we should interview, all that sort of thing. I love to hear it. It's great to get feedback from listeners, so please send that along. You will also find there ways you can support the show financially. You can donate to us. There's a PayPal link. There's a Patreon. Subscribe there to get bonus episodes and early episodes as soon as they come out. We appreciate all of those of you who have already done that. You can engage with us on social media. The links are also on the website. And of course, one of the many ways that you can support the show if you enjoy what we do, if you think it's important, please tell other people who may be interested about the show to listen to it and stick your listening habits up on social media and stuff like that. It all makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. Until next time then, please do take care.